today on CityCast Denver. With commuters still not returning to the office at pre-pandemic levels, downtown Denver is struggling. So what does this mean for Larimer Square, the city's most famous and iconic historic block? The new owners, Asana Partners, hail from North Carolina and they have a new plan. But will it work? And if it doesn't, where will we take tourists to shop for Western wear and eat fancy steak dinners? Keep it, we like it, it's where we take our visitors, it's the historic heart of Denver, keep it as historic square. Westward Editor-in-Chief Patty Calhoun joins me today to discuss the future of Larimer Square. Today is Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. I was just on the 16th Street Mall this past weekend. Now, the 16th Street Mall is a little pathetic with the rip up. (laughs) We were in the right room, which is in a Masonic building. It's just like an event space. It was weird. I'd never been in there. The Masonic building, isn't that right next to where the Paramount Cafe was, where you you used to smoke your cigarettes? Yep, you can see the Paramount from the window. Patty Calhoun, welcome back to CityCast Denver. Thanks so much, Bree. So, Patty, to put it mildly, downtown is like in flux. And it kind of includes some of Denver's crown jewels, namely Larimer Square, which we just learned is losing its mainstay, one of its mainstay tenants, Bistro Vendome, which is moving to Park Hill. Patty, are you worried about Larimer Square? It's not that I'm worried about Larimer Square because it will always survive in one form or another. You just want to be sure the form that it survives in is one you like. So a couple of years ago, there was a proposal under the previous owner, Jeff Hermanson, who'd partnered with Urban Villages, and they had this grandiose proposal for Larimer Square that was basically going to rip off the back of a lot of those buildings, which let's remember, historic district, historic buildings, they were going to rip off the backs and build these eight-story structures behind them. And I think they badly misgaged how people feel about Larimer Square, even if they haven't been there recently. Sure. And then, of course, the pandemic comes. It was sold again to a group out of North Carolina, Asana, which seems to have a better feel for what Denver does and doesn't want. I'm just thinking about something that this this original group that purchased it and wanted to do this wild, you know, sort of it's not even infill. That's the part that confuses me is, is did, could they just not buy a parking lot nearby and do that? Why Why did they think Larimer Square was the place to dump some tall buildings? When there are other tall buildings around? Yeah. It was. Well, you think about it. If you were trying to sell pricey lofts to people from out of town and you're like, this is the great historic block and it's very cool. And then you'll have a nice apartment behind it. They just didn't really think. And, of course, the pandemic has completely changed downtown economics, at least for office buildings. So we're at, what, 50 percent if we're lucky if people are back in the offices. So that cuts down on the traffic for any kind of retail and restaurants during the day that depended on offices. So you want to keep a tourist attraction or a place that people will come in from the suburbs on the weekends. And you have to really rethink what are your attractions downtown. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about Dana Crawford and why we even have Larimer Square, because I, I think that it's not necessarily known to some folks because it's been here in its current state for several decades. But 
that wasn't always the case. It wasn't always historic Larimer Square with operating businesses, attract, like you said, attracting folks from the suburbs, people coming to visit. What did Who is Dana Crawford and what did she do? So the backstory on it is 60 years ago, the whole length of it had basically turned into Denver's Skid Row. It was pawn shops. It was flop houses. There were a few places like Lafitte's was there, nice restaurants. But for the most part, it was flop houses by the early 60s. And Dana, who'd moved here, she was originally from Kansas, got into kind of the PR world, development world was having cocktails one day with some friends at her house in Denver and she and her husband, and I think it was Dick and Maddie Gibson who brought the jazz concerts here, decided they'd go look at Larimer Square because Dana's like, well, I have an idea. And they go down from their backyard barbecue to this one block of flop houses and Dana shows how great the buildings are. And she goes, we could develop this. And that's how it started. She wound up buying all these buildings or getting other people to buy the buildings in the 1400 block of Larimer, and it became Larimer Square. And then I think the first historic district in the city in 1970, but it was already by then beginning to run as Larimer Square. I find Dana interesting because she is very much characterized for good reason as a historic preservationist, someone that really helped to... uh, push that movement forward. She's also an economic development person. I mean, that's that the root of Larimer is you can do all you want with cool buildings, but you've got to be able to attract people who maybe have a different perception of what is going on there. I grew up in Chicago, so Second City was where you would want to go on the weekends to hang out, which was full of, um, well, Second City comedy. And it was just Old Town was so cool in Chicago, and I think every town had one, and Denver's was going to be like that, and there was your father's mustache and cool bars, and the magic pan came in at some point. I don't know when. My first visit to Denver, I came in on the train when I was a kid with my parents, and we were on our way up to go skiing, and it was a whole bunch of families, and we went and ate in Larimer Square, which must have been very new at the time, and went to our first Mexican restaurant, La Mancha, which was downstairs that I don't think exists anymore. But Larimer Square at the time was really geared for tourists, and when we first started westward, we talked to Dana with them. We were so excited. We're like, we could get people from Denver to come here, like just for dinner for fun, because that's what people in their 20s wanted to do, go into town and see what was going on. Yeah, and I mean, I grew up going to Larimer Square in the 90s. Um, And then as a teenager, we did a lot of cruising down Larimer. And it was the spot where people hung out. Right. Like By then there seen. were clubs you could go to, whether you were young or old, good jazz places. But Larimer Square has gone through a lot of different iterations. And we're now in probably the fifth, I'd say, and about the fourth owners. Yeah. So we have these new owners. And I know you had mentioned there was this plan in 2018 that the owners at the time wanted to blow out the backs of these buildings, build these big structures. Um, but it's changed now that, like you said, um, People didn't like that idea. A new company has come in. But I'm wondering, these are old buildings. Is there a lot that needs to be done? Well, there is a lot that needs to be done to them. But interestingly, people who are in those buildings pay into, you know, a special Larimer Square fee. Union Station has one. There are a lot of different areas around town. So there's always been a little bit of question on why that money wasn't used to keep the buildings Mm. up to the level they should have been. On the other hand, these are 
150-year-old buildings in some cases. So their costs are going to be unusual, and retrofitting them is going to be really unusual. And that's the newest level we have. I mean, in 2018, that was the big excuse they used, and that's why they had to blow up half of them and build big <laughs> buildings. Now Asana, that wound up buying it from Jeff Hermanson, seems to think they can do a lot of those renovations. And you've seen the renovations maybe around the building that holds Ted's Montana Grill. And right next to that, they're going for a variance that would allow them to put on a rooftop deck. So on a historic building, that's a little more iffy, but I think probably the city might go for it. I depending. know. I'm thinking about Tamayo right across the street has a killer rooftop patio. But they didn't have to do any demolition sure. to make that patio. I mean, a lot of those were already flat-roofed buildings or new buildings in Phil and Larimer Square. So it seems like this current ownership uh, has the intention of, of keeping that historic feel or facade. We certainly hope so. I mean, one of the reasons Bistro Vendome had to move, it had been on a lease-by-lease basis. Now, under the 2018 plan, that building would have just disappeared. Now, with the new owners, they're planning on restoring the building, doing a lot of work upstairs, but it's going to be closed for two or three years, which is why Bistro Vendome had to move. And inside those buildings, you know, the upper second, third floors, there are a lot of little rooms that are not particularly the way businesses operate in 2022. So as I understand it, they want to open up those spaces more for businesses that want to have offices there. So that makes sense. Because, I mean, for Bistro Vendome, I think a lot of its appeal, I mean, obviously the food, but it was the atmosphere. I mean, the, the structure itself created this cool space. And it seems like it would be hard to replicate in a new um, location. But I also can't imagine trying to close my business for two to three years. Right. And then You're just surviving. not going to make it. So I think in this case, moving to Park Hill, to a place, a neighborhood hungry for a good restaurant like that was smart. But we also lost places like Gusterman's. I mean, its lease wasn't renewed. Victoriana, its lease wasn't renewed. They had to go. So there's no question that the new owners are all also trying to change the complexion of what places are in the buildings. What do you think they want? Because I have to say, like, once the market closed, I didn't have much of a reason to go down there. To defend the new owners, rarely. Uh, the market wanted to go anyway. They were going to sure. close. That Retired. was going to be retirement. What the, the handsome boys, Josh Schmitz, who runs a lot of things around town, he's putting in some temporary restaurants, temporary clubs, doing a lot of activation, Halloween pop-ups. Not a bad idea if you want to bring people downtown right now to do fun of the moment ideas. But do you think the new owners are just trying to clean house and start over? On the block? I don't think they're going to start over entirely because you've got a guest like Ocean Prime, Capital Grill, which are chains. But those guys have the bucks and they're going to keep paying. And presumably those restaurants are still attracting people. Yeah, that's a good point. Rioja is doing very well. I mean, it's about to turn 20, so that's great. Uh, so there are still some restaurants that do extremely well there, but we're going to see a lot of changes. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade. Hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. 
There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. You know, talking about how people felt when they rolled out this potential plan in 2018, I just wonder, though, do people care that it's historic? I think they do. Well, they certainly, in 2018, they were mad. And that was because of getting rid of some of the historic buildings. I think now people like to go down to the block, which is still closed to traffic, and I think will remain closed which is awesome. yeah. to traffic, which is great. It'd be nice if it could look better, but technically, under city laws, they have to have those temporary barricades up. They can't do nice little planters and walls. People just like to be able to know there's a place they can go and have some fun and see cool old Denver things and look at the mountains from the street and just say, this is a go-to place. And you can tell that Union Station learned that lesson. Yeah. And at the root of it is like, you can put cool restaurants in the space, but a lot of it is, it feels cool. It looks cool. It's has, it has a very specific feeling. It's definitely like that old Denver sort of wild west. So the old buildings do make a difference, yeah, yeah. even if the market isn't there. I mean, I'm not... I'm not actually sure what's in the market at the moment. Every time you go down there, you will see a new building is being renovated or there's a posting for we want to put something on the roof. So we have to pay attention because they are filing plans with the city as they want to make changes that aren't within the current zoning code. So we'll start to see what these things are that they want to put in, you know, what kinds of restaurants, what kinds of maybe other activities. And you have to you have to update it for the next generations. The magic pan was not going to make it forever. And there was some German oompa store. I can't remember what that was. And just I mean, I loved places like Crybaby Ranch, but like everything, yeah. you go through different eras. Yeah. And Crybaby Ranch was really, to me, felt like very 80s where it was a cool store that sold great, really interesting looking clothes, but it was a very specific genre and time. Right. I mean, I miss Victoriana. I miss Gusterman's. You want to make sure they keep local retail because there were horrible times when it was like Talbot's. <laughs> Who needs to go downtown to downtown Denver for Talbot's? No, you can go to the Cherry Creek Mall for Talbot's. Um, so I, I'm also thinking about just across Spear, um, Cronky's planning this huge new development. And I uh, I see those areas as connected. I mean, I think about if I go to an event at Ball Arena, often I'm in Larimer Square or on market getting dinner beforehand. But how do you think that these, will these things work in tandem? Will they connect in any way? The more liveliness there is, the more liveliness comes down. I mean, that's the whole plan downtown Denver wants right now. Get people down there, get people down there, and then more people will come and then more businesses will come. The original plan for Auraria actually had Larimer Square much more connected, and the DCPA, the Denver Performing Arts Complex, much more connected with Auraria. The whole idea was that was all part of the urban environment. So this Kroenke plan could work that way, but at a certain point, will we be over-restauranted? Will we be over-entertained? And will the place that suffers be the uptown end of the mall, which is in dire need of some activation? Yeah, it really is. Ugh, I don't know. The mall still, the 16th Street Mall is still a whole, whole other beast. Well, Patty, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. And here's what else Denverites are talking about. Denver City Council has officially approved Ron Thomas as the next police chief. 
Thomas has a big job ahead of him, including department-wide staffing shortages, a whistleblower complaint, and the general mistrust of police across many Denver communities. As Denverite pointed out, in the same city council session that approved the new chief, council members also signed off on a $350,000 payout to a photojournalist who was assaulted by police during the 2020 George Floyd uprisings. Hopefully, Chief Thomas can make sure that kind of assault won't happen again. Remember when RTD was free for a month? Well, RTD will be free again on October 28th and November 8th, aka National Vote Early Day and Election Day itself. The Denver Post reports that while most voting happens by mail in Colorado, RTD is making these days fare free in an effort to increase access to voting for folks looking to do so in person, which is pretty cool. Oh, and speaking of voting, clerk and recorder Paul Lopez is stopping by CityCast Denver soon. And we want to know, what questions do you have for the clerk ahead of the election next month? What do you want to know about voting in Denver? Text us or leave us a voicemail with your name and neighborhood at 720-500-5418 or email us at denver at citycast.fm and we might ask Clerk Lopez your question. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell Dana Crawford about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, which you can do by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See ya. They do when you refuse to put your shoes on back on and you've already put $20 worth of Billy Joel songs in the jukebox and then you don't even get to enjoy them because you've been 86 from Coyote Ugly on a Sunday afternoon for being belligerently drunk. (laughs) Which is why I don't drink anymore, Paul, in case you were wondering.